pretty much having fun on a bike is my thing. And I have raced as a dinosaur multiple times. So the, the part-time dinosaur. I have no less than five dinosaur costumes in my house. It might be six now, actually. So <laughs> that is not a joke. <laughs> my friends, my real friends know that I never joke about things. So people who <laughs> laugh and write me off, they're, they don't get me. But I'm always serious about that. <laughs> and then what was the other part? Taco enthusiast. I mean, you need to have good fuel. <laughs> you also you also describe yourself as a haphazard blog poster. Yes, um, I used to do more blog posting. I actually looked back at my notes from like Raspatitsa in 2015 to refresh my memory. Um, yeah, it's something that kind of fell off my radar a bit. Hello, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in lovely Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you sincerely, and also welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports. As an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete, told to the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, velociraptors, superheroes, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Jen Murphy joins the show this week. Anyone who describes themselves as a scientist, cyclist, cycling coach, part-time dinosaur, haphazard blog poster, and taco enthusiast deserves a podcast episode. Jen has taken her love of cycling and explored nearly every avenue available to her. From bike commuting, she rides thousands of miles a year to and from work. Advocacy, she leads a group that empowers women to bicycle. Racing, if you're into the New England cyclocross scene, you know Jen Murphy. And coaching, there aren't too many places two wheels haven't brought her. And yet, of all the things she's experienced on the bike, the off-bike obstacles she overcame in 2022 arguably taught her the most valuable lessons she's learned. Here she is, Jen Murphy. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Hey, you uh, you recently got back from an amazing cycling-focused trip to Spain, during which you achieved a remarkable 12 and a half miles ridden per espresso drink consumed. You did out my stats. I was actually thinking of doing that. Now, <laughs> do you think if you had to, you could have drank more espresso? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was slacking. <laughs> Jen, tell us, tell us more about that trip. Yeah, this trip was... I think a, a long time coming. 
uh, waiting for COVID restrictions to loosen up. Um, you know, I went on a trip to France last summer and to be able to go on a trip like this and get out of New England, um, in, you know, the cold winter three months, <laughs> uh, it was a treat to get some riding volume in with friends and, uh, you know, not not freeze to death. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, who those friends were. Um, cause I think, I think that's a unique, uh, part of the story. Um, you're, you're also a self-described scientist, cyclist, cycling coach, part-time dinosaur, haphazard blog poster, and taco enthusiast. Now I mm -hmm. sort of feel like that introduction needs a little further information. So for the listener who doesn't know Jen Murphy, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. I think um, that's a good summary of me. I think that's from my Instagram profile. <laughs> so good researching. It's sleuthing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So my day job is a scientist. I work in biotech. I'm a protein purification scientist. Um, I work in a development lab in Portsmouth. And we work on monoclonal antibodies and recombinant proteins for a CMO. I know I'm throwing out a lot of jargon. <laughs> I love it. I'm a scientist uh, myself. That's that's excellent. So I, I'm definitely a, a science-minded athlete, uh, segueing into the, the cyclist part. I think I'm, I, I, I would identify as all things cycling, right? From cyclic commuting to racing to training. Um, pretty much having fun on a bike is my thing. And I have raced as a dinosaur multiple times. So the, the part-time dinosaur, I have no less than five dinosaur costumes in my house. It might be six now, actually. So that is not a joke. <laughs> my friends, my real friends know that I never joke about things. So people who laugh and write me off they're they don't get me i'm always serious about that <laughs> and then what was the other part taco enthusiast i mean you need to have good fuel <laughs> you also you also describe yourself as a haphazard blog poster yes um i used to do more blog posting I actually looked back at my notes from like Raspatitsa in 2015 to refresh my memory. Um, yeah, it's something that kind of fell off my radar a bit, but um, I really do enjoy writing and posting about uh, my adventures and stories, maybe putting my lens on uh, an event that might not seem very interesting, but you know, from my point of view, I, I can spin it in a way that makes you see it through my eyes. And that's, uh, that's something I love to do that I wish I had more time to do. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I've, <clears throat> I've maintained two separate blogs, um, both of which uh, uh, have become overrun with weeds because I, <laughs> I just, um, it started uh, with gangbusters. And then, you know, to your point, just um, had a hard time setting aside the time. Um, 
And, you know, I, I mean, I think for athletes, what I, um, you know, blogging sort of had its heyday, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, maybe. I thought it was a really great uh, vehicle for athletes to share enhanced race reports, for instance. Obviously, bloggers would sh bloggers who were athletes would share more than that. But, um, you know. <laughs> The, 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 the average social media user only has a, a certain attention span when it comes to reading a race report. And as oh, much yeah. as we want, as much as we want to share our ex exploits uh, on social media, truth is while the majority of our social media networks uh, are probably athletic minded people, uh, even they, some of them have a, have a limit uh, to how long they'll stay on a post, but a blog is a different story, right? You, you go to someone's blog, you're you're mm -hmm. you're purposefully going there to read more about what's going on with them. So I really feel like um, it, it, it's a cool vehicle. But with with all of these things, it just takes time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, race reports, I, I write my own writing for my own posterity that probably I don't share with anyone. But then maybe there's an interesting spin on it to like when I was writing about my commutes home from work and I saw a banana splayed like a tarantula in the road and I actually submitted it to Urban Dictionary as Banantula and they rejected me. And, um, you know, those interesting things that enter your head when you're riding a bike that you just want to share. Uh, yeah, uh, I that's, should get back to blog posting. It's kind of, it's kind of funny because um, my... Uh, uh, my experience with urban dictionaries, they have a fairly low bar with respect to what they will, what they will post on their sites. Yeah, I so, found the bar. <laughs> so so, <laughs> so the, the fact that your, 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 uh, humorous, uh, observation, uh, didn't make the cut, uh, probably says more about them than it does about, does about you. I agree. Uh, um, so, you and I came to know each other, uh, I think, um, through cyclocross. And uh, we're going to talk a lot more about cyclocross here in just a moment. But um, as I was as I was going through, um, well, a, a website that I used to spend, uh, admittedly, more time on than I probably should have, crossresults.com. Um, <laughs> I since I since I stopped cyclocross racing, I, I obviously don't spend any time on that website anymore. But there was a time when I was racing cross that again I, I probably spent more time on crossresults.com than I should have. But as I was um, as I was um, re reviewing um, not only your time as a cyclocross racer, current by the way, and my previous time as a cyclocross racer, uh, there was an overlap. Uh, you and I overlapped toward the end of my uh, my my very short-lived cyclocross experience. Um, I want to say it's probably 2016, Jen, 2017. Mm -hmm. um, I that was toward the end of of my time in in cyclocross, but and and it was because you know, and and I'm sure you'll you'll talk about this the. Um, the cyclocross community is a really cool. It's a cool community uh, to be in to be involved with. Sure, there are uh, a fair number of people that just show up to cyclocross races autonomously, race the race, and then get in their cars and go home. 
but the majority, at least in my observation, the majority of people that race cross um, are doing it at least in part for the community, for the oh, vibe yeah. and the surround. And it didn't take me long um, in the cyclocross community to, to figure out um, that the folks at Colonial Bicycle Company were a pretty cool group to kind of hang around with. Now, I know initially when you got into cross, um, you were racing for a different local bike shop, but, but eventually, um, and I think this is probably how we cross paths. Eventually, um, you, well, you, you, you likely knew a lot of people that race for colonial bicycle company or were involved in colonial bicycle company. So you probably were spending a fair amount of time in that tent or near that tent. Same with me. And so, um, that's, that's probably how you and I came to know each other. Do you, do you remember the story better than I do? I think so. I think it was just my immersion into racing, into the cross scene. And I think we did practices at Stratum Hill. That's right. And it was an inviting community. Like you said, it's all about community. So it kind of became, you know, I, I started racing for, for um, Gus's, uh, Gus's bike shop and um, they had community practices open to, it didn't matter what team you were on. Um, I raced for Colonial for a while. Now I'm on my own team, <laughs> Salt, Salty Women, off-road bicycle team. Um, but yeah, the great part about cyclocross is it is such a strong community and it doesn't necessarily matter what team you're on. You can go hang out in other team tents and everybody's friends and like, yeah, I, I don't understand the people who just show up to race and go home because, you know, it's cold and it's hard and you break all of your stuff and <laughs> without the community and the friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> what are you showing up for? Uh, well, not only the community and the friends, but also the, the bike mechanics, to your point, uh, cyclocross oh, yeah. can be cyclocross can be kind of rugged on bikes. And not that that was not, not, not that that was my exclusive motivation, obviously, to uh, uh, to begin spending more time at the Colonial Bicycle Company tent. Um, <laughs> but it didn't hurt. Right. Let's let's just say it, it didn't hurt to uh, uh, to have a group uh, to support you, um, in, including uh, a mechanic. Uh, to, su to support you uh, on race day. Um, so again, we're going to get into cyclocross uh, a little bit more, but how did you get, how did you get into cycling initially? Yeah. I mean, I always rode a bike growing up, um, a mountain bike to, to crash around. Um, I grew up in Western Mass and my, my, my nearest friend was like, you know, a couple miles down the street. So as a kid, you can't drive. If you want to get anywhere or do anything, you need your own mode of transportation. And on foot, it wouldn't get you very far in the woods. So we rode bikes and, you know, I rode a bike as transportation through college. I always thought mountain bikes were the coolest, um, especially with disc brakes, because they look cool. And it was actually, um, my husband, who I met at UNH, who was on the cycling team at the time, who convinced me to pick up road riding again and to demo a road bike. And 
I had not been on a road bike since I was, I don't know, maybe 10, 12, had a 10 speed Huffy road to the lake. So here I am on a road bike again, and you can cover a lot more ground on a road bike. Uh, somewhere along the way, I flip-flopped and got into racing and he got out of racing. But uh, much before that happened, I started cyclocommuting to my job. Um, I Before that, I think I was riding like hundreds of miles and then I kind of realized oh, I can fit this in my life and I can ride thousands of miles now. So it was really my husband who got me into that and opened up the gateway drug of road riding and mm. Mm. kind of what, increased um, mileage. What, what did your commute look like in terms of, in terms of mileage uh, or, or distance? Uh, how long did it take? Um, you know, I, I, always have, I always have lots of questions around um, bike commuting, um, it, not only the time commitment, but also uh, what do you do when you get to work, right? Do you have, do you have showers available? Um, so t tell us a little bit more about that, about that bike commuting. Cause, cause I guess for me, um, that's really, that, that, that's when you really got into cycling, right? That's right. That, 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 that's when things really became, really began to be a little bit more serious. Yeah, I would call the bike commuting my gateway drug there to serious volume of cycling. I actually asked my husband in 2012, it was a uh, bike to work day in May of 2012, uh, 2012 to take the day off, take the morning off and bike into work from Barrington to Portsmouth with me. And it was 16.67 miles each way. Um, so yeah, we went through multiple towns. We went on some more main roads, like through the traffic circle. And I got to work, took a shower. I'm, I'm very lucky to have showers and locker rooms and a bike rack at work, an amazing benefit. Um, yeah, and he, he went home and I biked home after work and it was an incredible thing. I realized, oh, I, I can do this. It doesn't just have to be bike to work day. I can fit this in my life. So, you know, then you think about the coordination of what you need to leave at work, what you need to pack, what you need to bring with you back and forth. Um, hybrid commuting some days, you know, bring my bike in the car, bike home, then I have to bike in the next morning. What am I going to do for breakfast? I'd leave a $20 bill under my keyboard. Um, I had all kinds of organization and strategies down. And um, then it became really rewarding to reach out to other people at my company and kind of teach them that they could do this too. So I became like the quintessential bike to work girl. I still am. And I just kind of met every cyclist at work. Um, but it was nice to make those kind of one-on-one -on -one connections with people. I did like lunch and learn sessions and maybe we would get three people or one person. But if I could talk to that one person and show them that they could actually do this, like that meant a lot to me. Did you, did you ride in inclement weather? 
I did, but usually I didn't start in it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was mostly on the way home. I would get stuck in thunderstorms. There was one day early on, I remember, uh, I called my husband. I think the skies turned black and there was a tornado warning. And I'm like, I don't think we get tornadoes in New Hampshire, but just in case, can you come pick me up? So I hid under some trees and it got pretty nasty, but otherwise I would suck it up and ride home. And mm. Um, and how late into the, uh, into the season would you, would you ride or how late into the year would you ride up until first snowfall or, uh, was there a, a, a Columbus day or like, how, when did you, when did you decide it was, it was uh, bike to bike commuting, uh, was done for the year and, and you started driving into work? Yeah, it was usually around October that, uh, once I started, losing light in the day i'd always run lights to be visible to cars regardless of the season but really like once the acorn started falling <laughs> you know it, it became less friendly uh, also with the roads potentially freezing and the time change in november that's pretty much where i'd call it quits on the regular but you know if we had a nice weather day in november december even february it might be a a little stunt to take the bike back out and hmm. at one point in time i contemplated fat biking into work but i never actually did it so. <laughs> um i i know you've been actively involved in um cycling safety initiatives i just i just kind of fumbled through that but um uh, essentially the interaction between the uh, motoring community and the cycling community. Um, you, like I, um, uh, have known cyclists uh, who have had close calls with motorists. And um, at least for me, in two instances, uh, I have two friends that were killed um, cycling uh, on the roads. Um, did you purposefully uh, choose a route that had roads with a, a wider shoulder? Um, and did you did you ever have any close calls with motorists? Yeah, unfortunately, I think everybody has some stories. Um, I definitely tried to stay off of the beaten path, but also, you know, do everything I could to be visible with the blinking front and rear lights even i felt like when i was riding home and it was darker and i had the flashing strobe lights going like cars kind of they don't like that and they they gave me more space so i think you should always run the flashing lights um you know brighter colors reflective gear um when the sun is in the driver's eyes at that time of year it causes visibility issues too so you know sometimes you have to take the lane and, and and just look in the window look in the cars and look and see if the drivers are even looking up and noticing you or if they're on their cell phones um, so I, I do like to take back roads but with a you know 15 to 20 mile each way commute um, I didn't have a, a ton of options to get around the bay uh, either down Route 4 or under. Um, 
like 33 through stratum. Um, I did have a riding buddy though that I picked up along the way. I was very fortunate to meet my friend Suzanne Delaney, who also used to work on the trade port a half of a mile away from my company. And by chance, we happened to meet. And yeah, two, two girls cyclocommuting big distances <laughs> to, to uh, the common person's eyes, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so that made it easier too. We would bring a insulated bottle and get iced coffee in the morning and breakfast and then split our separate ways on the trade port but there's a lot of good motivation to get up and ride even later into the season mm -hmm. i do miss that um you were also very involved in initiatives that empower and encourage women to bicycle um how did that start and and uh i mean perhaps other than the obvious why why is it important to you? Yeah, um, I, I kind of got deep into this kind of innocently, starting with Bike to Work Day. I think that was the, the catalyst there. But around 2013, I took over Bike to Work Day responsibilities at, at my business. And in 2015, I met Ann Rugg, who was working for uh, Commute Smart Seacoast at the time at a bike to work day planning meeting. And she had just gotten back from the, I think it was the League of American Bicyclists um, big meeting in Washington, D.C., where she learned about She Rides groups. And she kind of latched on to me and was like, hey, you're the quintessential like female bike commuter. She was like, how would you like to start a group on the seacoast? I think we need this. Let's call it She Rides Seacoast. So it was really like that day in 2015 that we, the, the idea was born. And uh, that was probably its inception. And um, our mission is to empower and encourage women to bicycle uh, through educational clinics, fun rides, advocacy and other activities. So we're under the um, Seacoast Area Bicycle Riders or Sabre umbrella, our local bike advocacy group. And yeah, we ran a bunch of clinics through 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, got into gear swaps, like free cycling gear back into the community um, and also doing like I led a lot of basic bike maintenance clinics um, and also skills clinics. Um, I met Ann Torres of Try It Your Way Coaching and she kind of invited me under her umbrella too to help teach skills at through Throwback Brewery in uh, Northampton, New Hampshire. And they have great grounds there and let us set up cones and tape and you know, just provide an inviting atmosphere where people of uh, women of all skill levels could come and learn. So that that's kind of how I got into to that. And even beyond that, um, I think when I got into racing, it was still really important to me 
to help others see that they could get into racing. I, I started in bike commuting and now I'm racing. If people look at me now, they're like, oh, well, I can't do that. I like to show them, no, actually you can if you want to, this is how I started. Um, and nowadays uh, I find it really rewarding to still, you know, I'm working on my own goals, but to also lead some of those skills clinics and no drop rides. Um, like for, for example, uh, through meeting Arlen Chafee, who I know you did a, a whole episode on, a uh, local good guy and bike promoter extraordinaire. Uh, I've done some initiatives through the Gravel XX project, um, through Raid Rockingham and Kearsarge Classic, two of the gravel rides that he promotes that are great rides to get into. Um, yeah, just leading as a ride leader, a no drop ride leader, um, giving women advice and you know, tech, technical support, encouragement, just providing that atmosphere for anyone to show up and get into it. Because I think those that it can be a bit intimidating to jump into and just to have somebody like to have a little group to ride with and know, okay, they're not going to leave me for dead if I get a flat or something, right. you know, it's, it's really empowering. So I always find on those rides in those initiatives, I can connect one-on-one -on -one with people. And, and those are the meaningful interactions that I really need in my life. Um, I'm going to be a ride leader at Kearsarge Classic this August. I think it's August 5th. And this year, the No Drop initiative will be uh, co-ed. So I'm excited to see how that turns out. Hmm. There's still spots open, people. So if you want to ride bikes with me, I am no fun. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where would people go to find out more information about that, Jen? Yes, uh, <laughs> I think it's grvl.net. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find it on Bike Reg as well. Yeah, but grvl.net, gravel.net will get you all of the information on Raid Rockingham, Raid Lamoille, and Kearsarge Classic. Uh, they're all amazing gravel rides to get into. Hmm. Raid Rockingham actually goes through my backyard. Okay. <laughs> and that's a, that's a great ride. I did that a number of years ago. Um, uh, surprisingly uh, more difficult than I expected. Um, <laughs> Jen, w w for... Um, for anyone, but for women in particular, uh, what, what do you see as the greatest uh, barrier or obstacle uh, to overcome for them to get into the sport of cycling in general? Hmm. Is it, I mean, is it, is it as simple as I don't have a bike, I need a bike. And that's, uh, uh, that, that's the that's the biggest initial uh, hurdle or, or or obstacle or is there something else? Um, yeah, it's a it's a good question. I I definitely don't think it's race entry fees um, or ride entry fees. I think a little bit of the know how on the gear and like how to support yourself. Um, there's a lot of gear in gravel in particular. 
So like knowing how to take care, care of and maintain your gear, like what if you get a puncture on tubeless tires or do I have the right gear ratio? How do I even talk to my bike shop or mechanic to ask these questions without sounding dumb? You know, like, do I have what I need? Um, do I have the, the fitness? Um, but also it can be self-confidence. I think a lot of women question themselves and and they're like, oh, well, no, I'm not that strong of a rider or no, I can't be like her. And it's, it's tough to see people beat themselves up. Um, I think that's why I, I like to be part of the community to, to kind of empower them, to show them that they can actually do these things. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the big part, the self-confidence. Hmm. Um, getting into road cycling, um, to me would seem to be the, the easiest entry into the sport of cycling. Um, obviously while as intimidating as it can be to, to learn the vernacular as it relates to bikes, um, just having a bike to ride. Um, but there's, it seems to me that there would be, it's an exponential leap to go from road cycling into off-road cycling, be it gravel riding, which is almost a, an intermediate step between road cycling and mountain biking, um, or even all the way into, into the sport of, of mountain biking. Um, how do you help? I mean, I, I know that, that you're involved in all different types of cycling. Um, but specifically, um, you, uh, you know, you have a history of, of mountain biking and, and, and of course now this combination for you of, of road cycling and, and, and gravel riding, um, how do you help women bridge from riding on the roads to riding off roads, which I don't know, for me, um, I always found that gravel riding was safer, first of all, than road riding. Cause while, while we do encounter traffic on gravel roads, typically that traffic is going slower. Um, not always, but typically, uh, there's also less traffic, generally speaking, on gravel roads than there are on uh, on asphalt roads. Um, and and again, I, you know, gravel riding sometimes can be this uh, this amazing off road adventure. But how do you help women bridge, Jen, from and and break down barriers from you know being comfortable with road cycling to not being comfortable at all uh, with anything you know off pavement? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a different world. It, it definitely has a lot of benefits, like you mentioned, the decreased traffic. Um, you know, you're it, it's in quiet nature usually. You know, I I love it for those reasons, but I can see through other people's eyes, they're seeing okay, I'm I'm going into the remote wilderness, and I don't want to be by myself. What if I get a flat? Um, I'm riding dirt, my tires slip, I don't know what air pressure to run. 
um, and then the elevation gain and the gearing, you know, I'm not strong enough to climb these hills. So there are a lot of those factors. Um, I think the bike handling skills, I, I take for granted sometimes the bike handling skills that I have and what I felt like in the beginning when I didn't have those skills. And, you know, maybe somebody is not on a bike with the the right air pressure or tire width or, you know, so, something to make them feel more confident and, and they just don't know what they're missing. So if I can help them with those things, uh, like literally let air out of their tires to show them, like you will be a lot more comfortable during this ride. You'll feel the grip. You will feel, or you won't feel the vibration in your skeleton if you let me do this, and I promise I'm carrying a pump, if you want to put your, you know, 60 PSI back in your tires, I can do, do that for you, but trust me. Um, so even taking rides down the rail trail, we've done uh, an out and back on the rail trail or just, you know, somewhere tame to get people used to it. Um, that can be really empowering. Yeah, you know, and even something I mean, it's all relative, right? Um, for someone who is only ridden on the roads, asphalt roads, even the even the rail trail <laughs> seems like it is seems like it is a it is a continual obstacle ridden riddled course with <laughs> rocks and roots. And, you know, again, it's all it's all a matter. It's all a matter of perspective, of course. But um, uh, but I, I, I mean, I. I really feel like uh, a rail trail is an excellent introduction into into off-road cycling. Um, of course, the the wonderful thing and the uh, and the um, challenging thing about cycling is uh, are the bikes. Cycling nowadays is a fairly specialized sport uh, with each variation or each iteration of or each type of cycling seemingly having its own bike um for someone for someone who who who's a who's a road cyclist that wants to maybe begin to explore off pavement cycling in other words gravel riding is it essential that they have a gravel specific bike I'm going to say no, not not essential. I'm going to say though, if if you don't have the confidence and the bike handling skills, that you know, wider tires and lower air pressure are definitely going to to play into your favor and make you feel more confident. But even nowadays on today's road bikes, you can put pretty wide tires and run disc brakes. I'm running tubeless tires and disc brakes on all of my bikes, except my fat bike. Um, I am a fan of taking my road bike into the woods and stupid places where people won't follow me. I like to go mountain biking on my road bike where you can't stop. I'm not going to say the average person likes to do those things, but you know, if you're riding a gravel path or you're riding the rail trail, maybe not bombing down it, but you're just riding along. I, I don't see why you couldn't put on some file treads, uh, some tubeless 
tires and you know test it out and see if your your road bike works for you if you feel comfortable but um if people are looking to get into cycling and they don't have a bike yet i really think if you get a gravel bike and two wheel sets that is the swiss army knife you know if, if you don't have the budget to go buy five specialty bikes just get a gravel bike and get a couple sets of tires or a couple of wheel sets and you'll have everything you need and more there i think that's excellent advice um i mean reality is although it's called a gravel bike um Although it's a little slower on the roads uh, than a, a specialized or a a road uh, 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 specific bike would be, uh, a gravel bike is more than capable on the roads. And I, I, I guess for me anyway, the the difference is a gravel bike uh, is is uh, passable on the roads, but generally a road bike is not terribly passable on gravel i mean again it's do it's doable it, i get it, it really depends on the sketch level that you are you're comfortable with and of course your riding style clearly if if you're going to if you're going to soft pedal the rail trail a, a, a road bike would be probably fine um the gravel roads we have out here in in strafford and farmington and new durham and and uh um, Pittsfield area, some of those, a road bike on some of those gravel roads would probably be fine for a ride or two, but, but eventually I think you'd find, you'd find your, your limits, uh, on a road setup. But I, but I completely agree with you that, uh, that the gravel bike is the Swiss army knife, knife of bikes. Cause to your point, uh, if you are adventurous enough, you can actually take a gravel bike on single track on, uh, mm -hmm. trails that are otherwise uh, built for mountain bikes. Uh, you can't ride it like a mountain bike, but you can ride it on mountain bike trails. So that kind of makes it fun too. I love that. I love that idea. Um, mm -hmm. well, well, riding bikes and racing bikes are obviously related, um, but can be very different. Um, when did you cross the Rubicon and start uh, racing your bikes consistently? Yeah, I think it was um, 2015 was the year that I bought a gravel bike. Um, that was m my first gravel bike and I got it. I was going out with Gus's bike shop and riding the rail trail. And, and I had a few friends who were racing cyclocross at the time. Um, I know Aaron Holmes and um, Diane Conway, you know, they, they were cool to me. They were like, on the cyclocross team and i was like okay you know what i really want to go to cyclocross practice and learn to get better bike handling skills and i went to the the gus's bike shop um practices at the rye airfield which is like a the grounds behind a skate park you just show up sign a waiver they had some local elite racers and just local racers teaching us what to do and running skills drills. Um, but my, my whole kind of impetus for getting the better bike handling skills came from crashing my bike in 2013, my road bike. I was on a group ride and I, I hit some sand and yeah, I had a concussion from that. Took a while to recover from, but
But, you know, it was after that I thought, you know what, I would really like to have more confidence, more bike handling skills um, so that if I hit sand like this, I don't worry about it. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. I, I thought, OK, I'm just going to go to the skills clinics and then it became, OK, I'm I'm going to just do a couple of races and and see if I like it. And uh, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> so my, oh, I'm going to do a couple of races turned into, I think, 11 races my first season. So like absolutely addicted from the get-go. <laughs> um, funny how that happens. And then there was no turning back from there. And then it had created a monster. That's so, <laughs> so very true. Um, so y you did Rasputista in 2015. Mm -hmm. Right, the year that you got your you got your gravel bike. By the way, what? Because uh, bike people like to know uh, what bikes people ride. What what was that first gravel bike? Do you remember? Yeah, it was a Raleigh RX 2.0. It was aluminum with a carbon fork, and not enough gears for Raspatitsa. <laughs> like, on, on the advice <laughs> of my friends and mechanics, put on a smaller chain ring by like two teeth. And I thought that was going to make the difference, but <laughs> no, I did Vomar, which is the Vermont Overland Maple Adventure ride before Raspatitsa. And then I did Raspatitsa in 2015. When I say I did Raspatitsa, I DNF'd Raspatitsa that year. Um, I thought it was going to freeze to death. I got all this gear. I got neoprene gloves. I don't know what I was thinking. My hands sweat and then they froze on the downhills. <laughs> Yes. I wasn't wearing a warm enough jacket. I didn't own all of the things, the specialty gear that I have now that I needed. Um, and before I got to the famous uh, Siberia section in 2015, at least, I, I turned around with my friend and we headed back in. And I, I think when you DNF a race, it, it sticks with you. At the time, you're not thinking about it. It's just like, I need to survive. But I, I would... I'm not one who turns around or, or does that, but I was really going to die and I was going to be in the woods and I was going to freeze to death. It was snowing. It was windy. I was afraid for my life. <laughs> so that really got into my head that, you know, I need to go back and I need to finish Raspatitsa, which I did in 2016. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, everything that you described about Raspatitsa is, uh, um, uh, at least, at least in the in, in the in the initial iteration of it, was exactly uh, how they wanted it to be promoted. Um, it's a for for those not familiar with it, it's a it's a spring uh, gravel bike ride or or race um, uh, in Vermont, in the countryside of Vermont, uh, almost exclusively on um, this amazing. Vermont uh, gravel roads. Of course, Vermont gravel in the spring is a whole lot different than Vermont gravel in the summer and Vermont gravel in the fall. Their roads, um, their roads are pretty, can be can get pretty beat up. Well, it, frankly, any gravel road can get can get pretty pretty slippery, pretty peanut buttery um, uh, in the springtime. And and I'm glad that you mentioned that that infamous section of Rasputista called Siberia. Uh, that's this, uh, at least my recollection, the year that I did it, 2016, 
Um, and every, by the way, every, every spring in Vermont, every Rasputista is just a little different with respect to weather. I mean, it's all typically challenging unless you kind of catch a flyer and, and you get a wonderfully warm, sunny day, um, uh, which I had the experience of uh, in 2018. But in 2016, right, Siberia is this, uh, this relatively short section of the course up over a high point on the course that's this essentially you know unplowed uh snow covered uh section of class in new hampshire we call it we, we would call it a class six road i don't know how the gravel roads are classified in vermont but it's an unmaintained generally it's an unmaintained dirt road um and not not plowed but that's the right that's the that's the spirit of it and depending on the winter you could have you know two feet of snow that you obviously can't ride through uh so it's a hike a bike through that through that section uh, up over the high point and then and then down a little ways before you can start riding and anyway so that, that very famous uh, uh part of Rasputista. um so you were a dnf in 2015 you said mm. you said you returned what year 2000 2016 oh you can't all right so you and, were there and the 2018 year you yep. were there okay so all right so you and i were there together yeah. um what 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 was that race like the second time oh the second time i was so prepared i had everything and i laid everything out and you just do not know what weather you're going to get like until the night before morning true. of so you Very need true. to bring everything so I, I had a lot more gear in my possession the correct gear <laughs> and um and that year was a lot warmer like that year was a lot nicer weather wise but it there was probably more uh a mud instead of ice mud <laughs> um so yeah that that year was very successful for me <laughs> and then um what was your experience like in 2018 2018 um i had I think that was a little bit colder than 2016. Um, there were definitely some parts where I remember teaching my my friends and, and one of the athletes I now coach, uh, Jean Marie, how to descend, like how to pedal while still braking, like how to get traction through the slippery stuff, because you're going downhill too fast and you need to scrub speed but you need to keep those tires moving to get the grip. Um, so like using races like that to teach people along the way is, is always super rewarding when you see like somebody gets a skill for the first time. Um, I remember some long climbs and some a surprise section of snow at the end when you thought you were done with the last climb, but then we went through the woods again course i'm giggling and laughing and i'm riding it and i'm wondering if my friends are gonna slap me so i'm not getting too close like staying out of slapping distance because i absolutely love that silliness <laughs> well to um i i missed that uh late section of snow in 2018 um i you know i had uh that first year 2016 uh i did it on my um uh, my initial cyclocross bike that I had converted into a gravel bike, my aluminum uh, uh, felt. Um, but then in 2018, when I 
decided to go back to Rasputista. Um, I actually was planning to do it on my fat bike. I had trained all winter uh, here in Stratford, where I live, on my fat bike, and uh, and was as prepared as anyone can be for it to do it on a fat bike. About five miles into the race, and I'm descending uh, uh, West Darling Hill Road, and I come upon a uh, a crash scene. Crash. The crash must have happened a few minutes before I arrived because there were, I mean, you, you, you can, you can picture what this looks like, right? There were, mm. there were, there were, there must have been 50 water bottles, uh, littered, uh, on, uh, West Darling Hill road, right. Where, you know, where, where people had been descending and the road was super bumpy and, and mm. people are losing water bottles out of bottle cages. And, um, and I noticed that there was, uh, uh, there was, a, there was a couple of bikes down and there was, uh, there were a couple of riders down. And as I slowed down to, to sort of, uh, you know, go around this scene, I realized that one of the riders down was my, was my friend and client, Kevin Tilton. And, uh, he was, I want to say he was lying on his back and there were, there must, there were, there were several people there attending to him. So I stopped right away. Uh, we weren't planning to ride it together. He was on a gravel bike. Uh, I was on a fat bike, but I was obviously going to stop because it was my, it was my buddy. And, um, I remember looking, I remember looking at him and, um, I could tell that he'd had a compound fracture of his clavicle cause he had a, he had a grotesque, uh, bump, uh, on his, shoulder um and so i you know there wasn't anything that i could do uh because there were there were some uh good samaritans that were rendering some him aid at the time but um i actually i stayed with him um um when you know he was transported uh to a local hospital where they did you know emergency surgery uh, I rode back to the start finish line, got in my car and drove to that, that hospital and, 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 uh, and, and waited with him until his wife arrived. So, um, I only got five miles into 2018 Rasputin oh, wow. before, wow. Uh, before I, uh, my, my day was, was over. Uh, of course, you know, obviously my day ended a whole lot better than Kevin's day for sure. Um, uh, do you remember anything or did, did did you ever witness anything like that happen at, at Rasputista? Any 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 big uh, multi-rider uh, wrecks at that at that race? Yeah, I mean, like you said, the pile of water bottles is a telltale sign. Um, I do remember seeing the ambulance go by that right and wondering, like, oh, is that going to be somebody I know? I mean, the things that go through your head are not great when you see an ambulance on, on course. Um, luckily, I was not near any crashes when they happened. Like, I, I didn't go by anything that I saw personally. Um, I know that can definitely get in your head mid-race. And, and for sure, you know, yes, you're racing, but you see somebody and, you know, I always stop to ask people if they need help and yeah, thankfully, um, I haven't come across anything that I was personally bad that day. 
or in any of my Raspatitsa races. Yeah. But that's a course, I mean, you talk about bike handling, that's a course that really, uh, having good bike handling skills can, you know, can, can, can sometimes save you from getting in a, you know, from getting in a wreck. Um, and, uh, particularly on the, particularly on the descents and particularly on the descents in which there's a, uh, there's a, you know, a sweeping muddy turn at the bottom of the, of the descent. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you, you, you started racing. So we, we, we mentioned cyclocross, uh, racing earlier. You started racing cyclocross in 2015. Uh, I think your first race was Suckerbrook. Uh, yeah. In September, was. right. In September of that year. I love yeah. that race, by the way. Um, yeah. uh, that, that race was eventually, uh, discontinued, but, uh, uh, it was a great race. It was I me mean, for us here in new England. It was always one of the first cyclocross races. Um, and, um, uh, again, you, typically in September, um, uh, what do you remember about that first cyclocross race, by the way, Jen, yeah. do, do, do this, but for the listener who, who maybe isn't familiar with what cyclocross is, um, why don't, why don't you sort of give your little elevator pitch about what, what the sport of cyclocross is. And then I, I want to hear about your experience at Suckerbrook. Sure. So cyclocross, I hear a lot of people describe it as um, steeplechase on bikes, but if you don't know what that is, it's about, you know, a, a two-ish mile closed loop course. It can include all kinds of varying terrain. So you could have some pavement, grass, mud, sand, snow slush, puddles, whatever. Everything is fair game. There's nothing <laughs> nothing out of bounds. There's usually a couple of sections on the course each lap where you have to get off and like shoulder your bike off up a steep hill that's just too steep to ride or, um, you know, dismount and jump over a set of two barriers or maybe up some stairs. Like some people will ride the stairs. Uh, some people will get off, dismount and run up the stairs. And then while you're running, uh, you remount your bike and continue racing. So there's technical skills um, beyond just the racing, the different terrain that you need to learn. And I think that's what made it really interesting for me that, you know, here's a sport. This is completely new. I'm learning these skills. And to be honest, they're really cool. Like I saw other ladies that I admired doing the sport and I was like, oh, that's really badass. I want to do that. Um, so, you know, practicing drills, dismounts, remounts, um, shouldering, uh, all of that. It, it gave me something to work at and to become better at and uh, put to speed on the, the cross course. But cyclocross is an all out sport. It's very um, anaerobic, like your your heart is pinned from the start and it doesn't get any better. So it's all about um, building those matches to burn and, you know, you're you're slowing down to get over something and then you're sprinting out of a corner, you're jumping off your bike, you're running through sand and you're jumping back on. It makes your heart explode. It's like the hardest you can go for about depending on your race, you know, 30 to 60 minutes. So it's, it's an all out, but relatively short effort. 
Mm. Um, there's a lot of viewers on the course too who can cheer you on or heckle you and photographers who sit on the course and get what you hope will be awesome shots of yourself that you can check out later on crossresults.com. <laughs> I always found too that the first lap um, was a little bit like roller derby. Um, mm. You know, it's it's wheel to wheel, and uh, you know, depending on uh, depending on where you're seated in the field. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're smack dab in the middle of the field, then you end up being smack dab in the middle of the action, and uh, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a friendly sport, but it can those the first laps um, before things uh, you know uh, spread out a little bit. So, um, but I, I, everything that you described about um, uh, about how difficult the sport is uh, and how technical the sport can be, I uh, I, I would agree with that uh, completely. <laughs> um, you you started working with a coach in in. Uh, with a coach yourself uh, in 2017 after um, after hitting a wall, as you described with cyclocross. Um, what what do you mean? Um, what do you mean by by hitting a wall? What 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 were you experiencing uh, from a performance perspective at that time that precipitated you to reach out and hire a coach yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it was you know, I was training, but I was just taking advice from other people who seemed to maybe know what they were doing or were, were doing a workout. So I would, you know, do some intervals or do some skills. Um, I didn't know how many days a week I should ride, like what zones I should train in, uh, recovery days where they should go, you know, like how how do I make best use of the time that I have to get better? So, you know, just doing the same old thing was not getting me any better race results. Um, so it was around that time that I knew, okay. And I had been thinking about it for a little while. I was like, can I commit to doing this? So I think when you start working with a coach, it becomes a serious thing. You're like, oh, I, I have to do these workouts every day. I'm paying somebody to like, somebody cares if I'm doing it or not, right? So, you know, can I, am I at the point where I'm serious enough about this that, that, I, that I can do this? And, and my thought was, yes, for cross season 2017, I want to work with a coach and I'm gonna work through cross season and get better and uh and see where i'm at so i reached out to my coach uh robin farina at rofa endurance and you know kind of went over what i was looking to do she had coached a, a few of my friends she's still coaching my friend um, april uh, she had coached my friend suzanne delaney for mount washington and i was like okay well they're strong cyclists and their coach seems to know what they're doing. So, you know, I'm going to reach out as well. So in, in 2017, I reached out to Robin and it was a learning curve. I think it was like, you know, I had a dumb trainer. I didn't have any power meter. I don't know if I had a heart rate strap. I, I didn't know anything. And I, 
right off the bat started learning <laughs> and uh you know went out with my heart rate zones on a piece of painter's tape on my top tube and i was like oh my gosh i'm doing a zone two ride i gotta do this right at the right heart rate um but it pretty quickly escalated to um you know learning that okay getting a power meter would benefit me um for those short sharp intervals it takes some time for your heart rate to respond so if i'm trying to do a you know a 15 or a 30 second interval the heart rate data isn't really going to do me any good um so yeah i i learned a lot and i kind of um kind of improved my race stats for 2017 but it was really kind of at the end of the season that i realized like oh you know i should continue this that like a, a full year of structured training will will do me some good going into the next year i realized the benefit and really my 2018 season really shined from a whole year of preparation mm. and i think that's what some people don't realize i think in the beginning reaching out to a coach that like a couple months out you can only do so much much in a couple months right you can only make so many gains um i understand that well now but at the time you know i was new and learning and um i really saw the benefit and it's been something that i've stuck with ever since yeah i think that's exactly right um I mean, I'm, I'm sure as a coach now, you appreciate establishing long-term relationships with your clients, right? It does, and even in your uh, personal experience as an athlete, you know that um, it can take a little while for your coach's um, methods and philosophies uh, to really sort of take hold uh, and, uh, and, and for you to um, begin to uh, adapt and respond to the to the different uh, uh, approaches to training. Um, well, with that, you know, with 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 that um, with that sort of year-round commitment mentality, um, you started the 2018 cyclocross season. Your CrossResults.com points were 660. Now, in cyclocross uh, or CrossResults.com. Uh, um, the, the, the point system, the, the higher the points, the, uh, the, the lower your ranking or the, or the, or the further back you're seated in the starting grid. So with crossresults.com, um, um, your, uh, your performance, uh, at a race, um, uh, will yield you, uh, a specific score and, and the closer you finish to the front of the field, the, the lower that the score that you're assigned for that race and uh, what did cross results used to, did it take your like last six races or last? Yeah, I think last five, last five races, right. To get, to get your, to get your current cross results points. And again, you, then when you would register for a race, the race directors would typically seed you in the starting grid based on your cross results points. So the whole idea with cross is, Cyclocross is you want to you you want to ultimately start as close to the front as you can, <laughs> and yes. you do that you do that by performing well uh, in the category events that you are registered for. 
Um, and so again, the, the, the higher your points, the further back you're seated in the starting grid, the lower your points, the closer you're seated to the front. So again, you open the 2018 cross season, your crossresults.com points were 660. You would lower them to 442 by October of 2019, mm. allowing you to, to, as they say, cat up, uh, mm. or, um, uh, essentially go from racing as a cat four five racer to racing as a cat three racer. It's one of those, one of those crazy terminology things where catting up actually means you, <laughs> your, your number is, is, is less, but, um, help us to understand Jen, wh where you started, uh, in terms of, for instance, the cyclocross categories that I referenced and mm. then, um, and then, um, you know, did, did I do a, did I do a good job describing cat up? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, I think it's the, your best five or six races in the past 12 months that will determine your cross results points and your, um, start position on the start grid. And, um, and yeah, like you said, in, in 2018, I, I think my points were, well, you looked them up 660. <laughs> I did. And then, um, yeah, by October of 2019, they were down to 442, um, which means I was getting better and better results. I think through 2018, uh, you know, that was a full year of coaching and I was really, I was starting to see results and I was like pretty innocently surprised by how strong I was. I think going into some of the races, I was like, okay, you know, I hope I, I fall here, but I, I wasn't thinking, oh, go win the race. Um, and then like midway into the season, I think about October when I, I started peaking for the first time, I understood what that was. Um, I was feeling super strong. And I, I remember racing Gloucester in 2018 which is a big race and um that that was the last year of gloucester actually i, I miss it a lot but it, it was a big race and i think it was like 60 to 80 women in my my cat four race um and i was i came in third on day one i was on the podium in gloucester which was a big deal um and then fourth on day two uh, back to back races um, and I just, I started the streak of getting on the podium, you know, third places, second places. And I think the, the first place was eluding me, but I was, um, I was gaining points, upgrade points along the way. So depending on the number of starters in your race and the place that you finish in, you'll be rewarded, you know, a certain number of points so if you you finish first in a race of you know 80 starters you'll, you'll get 10 points i'm reading that off the cross results uh website or usa cycling website but uh, anyway you know there are some mandatory upgrade um criteria like if you get two wins in fields with a certain number of starters within 12 months it's a, a mandatory upgrade um, 
so anyway, I, I had I was solidly in the voluntary upgrade category, and I wanted to cat up. And my my coach was very good at um, I think keeping me disciplined, and uh, she wanted to see if I could put everything together to win a race before I just moved on up because she she thought that would teach me some good lessons. And I think. Uh, you know, I was a little rabid at the time, but I, I was a good patient athlete and I went through the motions and I, you know, tried to put all the pieces together race after race and hoping that one of these would be my day. Um, unfortunately, in 2018, I, I got sick and fell into a little death spiral that ended my season when I was doing really well. I know I would have upgraded that year and I was a little crazy about it. A lot of crazy about it. Um, so going into 2019, you know, that was my goal. I'm going to win a race and I'm going to move up. And um, I did. I did win a race. Uh, Boss Cross that was put on by 545 Velo. And um, and then I was like, I'm cashing in my points. I'm moving up. I won the race. <laughs> and I did. So I catted up to cat three there. And um, and I also became eligible. I think my, my racing age was 40 as well. So I was able to race the master's races as well. So I had these different options open to me now. I could race uh, like three fours. I could race three. I could race the elite one, two, three, which I did a couple of. Um, just hanging on to the back third, very humbling. Um, and being the the youngin in the masters races, uh, which is not any easier because the not. races are all experienced and very like very race. They're savvy. <laughs> that, is a, that is that is a good way to put it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Seasoned. Yes, they they know what they're doing. So is if that... you screw up, they will take advantage. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, ultimately, what what do you think were the were the most important factors um, that contributed to your um, improved performance uh, uh, during that 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 period of time? Yeah, I think it was being disciplined with the structured training. I was very very good and and very very motivated. Um, I I pushed myself harder on my workouts than I had ever had before. I wanted something and I wanted to work hard for it. And I think that makes all the difference in the world, um, you know, to get up and go out and race in these cruddy conditions. Um, you've got to have the motivation, but also respecting recovery. And you, you really do have to recover. You, you can't go hard every day. You'll get sick you'll burn out <laughs> so understanding how, how this all worked with the the recovery and, and put push hard or recover kind of through through race season um, i also did a lot with nutrition as well i completely changed my eating habits i lost like 25 to 30 pounds in 2018 um i mean i chart things i'm a scientist so i you know, I saw this go down, 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 and then kind of like maintain. I have like five years worth of data. It's very satisfying, but like completely changing my nutrition, my fueling, um, 
all of that made a, a huge difference as well. My uh, power ratio. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah. Um, well, it, it was 2019 that you threw your hat uh, into the professional coaching ring. Um, how did that come about? Yeah. So at the end of 2019, um, my coach, Robin Farina, actually reached out to me and said she thought I would make a good coach and offered to mentor me. And, um, you know, I was I was a little bit taken aback. Uh, Robin is a little background. She's a, the former 2011 USA National Road Race champion, uh, 2012 Olympic long team member. She managed uh, professional race teams and, um, you know, she's currently uh, operations director for a new women's pro team based out of France, uh, largely um, American riders, Siniska Cycling. So, you know, to, to have somebody reach out to me and offer to mentor me and to do this, I was like, oh, wow, you can't say no to that. Like, I, <laughs> I love doing the free clinics and helping people learn. And, you know, I, I never took a dime for it. But at the same time, I could see that it would be really rewarding to, like, learn this skill set and help other people really achieve their goals like I had. Um, so for people who wanted a little more of my time, um, I really had to learn that, you know, my time was worth money. <laughs> and like this was this was a valuable skill set to take on. Um, it's something that I very much love doing. It's super rewarding. Um, I love seeing people achieve their goals and kind of do things that they never thought they could achieve. Um, yeah, and those personal relationships that you build with people, it's it's really special. So yeah, yeah I, I was excited. Yeah. It's what's coaching. It's what coaching is all about really. Mm -hmm. um, well, you, you've described yourself mostly as a pandemic coach. You, you <laughs> got started in 2019. Uh, and you also admit that it was, it was hard not connecting with people during that time. Jen, how, how did, how did technology and your passion uh, for data uh, help you through that, this period of isolation? Yeah, I mean, it was really hard um, to not be able to go out and be at races and, and kind of ride with people. I think early on in the pandemic, there was even question on if you should go on a bike ride with somebody. Uh, so, yeah, technology, um, I use training peaks to build workouts and um, you know, there, there's an app on your phone you can use. You can sync the workouts with um, different applications like Zwift. I use Zwift a lot in my training. Um, it makes it a little bit more fun and engaging. So especially through 2020, through the pandemic, when people weren't going outside, uh, I started running a... Um, like a 12 week training series, a progressive training series on Tuesday nights on Zwift. It actually started uh, me and Tanya Gregory. We did something through Colonial Bicycle. It was her idea to start it. I have to give her all the credit. Um, 
we did a little intro session at the shop, like, you know, what is a smart trainer? How do I connect sensors? Um, how do I join workouts? And then we piloted this thing. And then um, Zwift kind of got a little bit more locked down and I kept the series going and, you know, I had it. So nobody questioned that I couldn't run top level events. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I kept it going with my coach and um, and then eventually I just kept running it through 2020 and 2021. I think I, I kept it going for a couple years straight, even into early 2022 before I, I pulled the plug on that. But that really um, gave us space for people to connect. You're all doing a hard workout and I would type encouraging mes messages or use you know Discord gamer chat to talk to people um, in the rest blocks. <laughs> so there were ways that we made it a little more engaging and, and you looked forward to getting on the bike and seeing those people. Like for, for other people, you know, I feel like they felt they were accountable, like, to me to show up. You know, I, I offered to give um, colored pencil sketches of custom root badges if somebody did all 12 workouts and showed me proof and like one guy did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it, Zwift and those other uh, smart trainer platforms uh, were a great way for folks to stay connected uh, uh, during the pandemic, for sure. Um, all right, so I'm, I'm a professional endurance coach myself, as you know. Um, so uh, let's get in the weeds a little bit. It's kind of fun. I don't always get an opportunity to do this. I'm going to ask you some questions, uh, um, some, some, some technical questions about, about how you uh, – how you organize uh, your training. So um, as a coach, um, uh, a cycling specific coach, uh, do, you, do you use power uh, or heart rate uh, to guide training intensity? I think it's very, it's very individual to the client and maybe what technology they have or are willing to buy. Um, for me, honestly, it's, it's, it's very helpful if they have a power meter and I can see power. Power is kind of absolute and it's not um, going to be affected by, you know, your recovery or amount of sleep or altitude or, or things like that. Um, so power is, if I can get somebody to get a smart trainer or a power meter, I always like to have the power data. Um, but yeah, I can work with heart rate data as well. Um, I think both of them together is very powerful because you can see the difference in maybe recovery or hydration or, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily see yeah. otherwise. Um, having thresholds uh, are obviously important um, for training peaks in order to, for training peaks to determine training stress. Um, those thresholds can be, you know, whether they're power thresholds or pace-based thresholds or heart rate-based thresholds, they can be estimated or they can be measured um, uh, or, or they can be determined from, uh, from uh, within race experiences. Uh, how do you determine um, uh, either power thresholds or, or heart rate thresholds? Yeah, really, um, my 
preference is for people to do uh, like a 20 minute power test if they can uh, with like a five minute all out, like blow your anaerobic um, contribution and then uh, recover and go into a 20 minute threshold test. But that being said, it, taking those tests is a skill in and of itself. And some people are not great at power testing or have like test anxiety or, you know, they're, people get really hard on themselves doing these FTP tests like it is, it determines their self-worth. There's a lot of great cycling memes out there. So like if somebody is just really having trouble with a 20 minute power test, like you said, there's other ways to estimate. Um, you can take race data, you know, if it's an appropriate type race or a long enough block that you can guesstimate and you can usually get in the right ballpark by adjusting from there with a couple of workouts, especially if I can see power data and get some um, qualitative feedback as well on how it felt. Um, I mean, heart rate, you, you can do heart rate threshold data as well. Um, or like a if the longer testing isn't working out for somebody, uh, there are ramp test options that can, you know, sometimes they can see they don't necessarily come out with the right number, but it's really, it's highly individual and it's about, it's more about getting in the right ballpark <laughs> and then adjusting from there. And uh, yeah, so everybody's pretty individual and, and, and different. Some people mm -hmm. can just knock out a power test and they, they know how to pace it and they don't stress so much about it. But for other people, the ramp test is a nice, quick and dirty, okay, you know, short burnout. Let's see where about you fall. Hmm. And uh, how often would you uh, repeat these, uh, these threshold tests annually? Uh, uh, more frequently than that? Less frequently than that? Oh, definitely more frequently than that. Maybe quarterly. Um, but again, highly depends on, you know, I'm, I'm coaching people for many different goals from fitness to racing cyclocross. Like, is the stress of taking a power test going to really help me or, you know, for some folks I'm adjusting. Okay. I'm, I'm seeing continuous trends that they're saying, I feel stronger. I feel stronger. And we increase the threshold by 10 watts, you know? So for some people that's less stressful. Um, other people, they're like, when can I take a power test again? So, mm. uh, but my favorite is the incidental power test where somebody is out, like they're happy and they're motivated and they're out like climbing a long climb and they set a new power threshold incidentally. Mm. And then I get the notification on my watch, like, oh, threshold notification for so-and-so. And I was like, oh, tell me about this. <laughs> yeah, it's the nice thing about Training Peaks uh, is that it, it will alert you if an athlete has uh, has set a new threshold, again, whether it's power threshold or pace-based threshold or heart rate threshold. Uh, Jen, when you, speaking of Training Peaks, which is a platform that I use as well, um, when, when reviewing an athlete's uh, activity data in Training Peaks, um, what are the, what are the metrics that, that you are looking at to assess, for instance, the quality of a workout or whether or not a workout is, is properly executed? 
what are the, what are the things, what, what are the data points you're looking at in Training Peaks? Yeah, I think the first thing I look at, training, training Peaks has added a couple of um, features that make it really easy to see if somebody had a great workout or a bad workout, like with the little smiley faces, <laughs> you can do like a grinning all the way to a super frowny face. So like if I see some bad metric like that off the bat, I will go in and, and see what happened, see when what went wrong. And uh, you know, if it was just a one-off day or if somebody is stressed out. Um, but I am looking at, uh, you know, what was the purpose of the workout? You know, was it cadence drills? Was it a long threshold effort? Um, depending on what the workout was, there are different metrics to look at. Um, there's also the the qualitative part of how the person said they feel as well, which I think, you know, you can't just analyze the data without taking that into account to make sense of the whole picture. Um, so yeah, if I see somebody is, you know, nailing their workouts and giving me super smiley faces again and again, and I'm like, these are really hard workouts. I do these workouts and th that's when I know, okay, hey, you're getting stronger. Let's uh, let's talk about increasing your threshold. <laughs> mm. You know, or or maybe somebody's having a bad time with uh, keeping a certain cadence. Like people either like a high cadence or a low cadence, and you know, we work on the one that they're not as good at, or both really. But um, you know, I kind of I dig into how did this go for you and maybe is there something in here that we need to work on more and that will kind of target how we move forward hmm. when um when taking a longer view um how do you determine an athlete's progress over time yeah i think um looking at people's individual goals um you know not everybody trains the same way because we have different race seasons and, and different events. So it's usually looking at, you know, did we approach the training for this goal the best way? Um, I like to have a couple of like practice events. I, I tell people, uh, you know, treat your, your training rides like a, a run through for your race and you know run the same race day strategy on your actual event so if i can see that you know we're, we're getting into the training and and they're doing well and feeling well okay what what went well there let's do that again um and then the the feedback they give on the actual event day you know how, how did you feel do you feel like we do you feel like you were prime ready to go rested enough strong enough you know when people leave comments like i felt really strong climbing um that's when i know like okay that's all of your hard work paying off that's that's what we want to see so there's the number in training peaks that will tell me fitness and form and you know freshness and but also how does the athlete actually feel and how does that translate on race day and i think you know, if something doesn't exactly go to plan, 
and you know somebody needs a little more rest or somebody actually races well, a little more fatigued, um, that's something that you can learn about the individual as you get more data on them. And so the next year you can, you know, kind of hone things in even more when you continue working with somebody. Hmm. When it, uh, when it comes to program design, how do you handle an athlete with a really busy racing schedule? Oh, luckily I don't, I don't think I have anyone like too crazy. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's about having a conversation, <laughs> like how much time do you have in your life? And I, I don't want you to wear yourself down and, and dig too deep of a hole <laughs> here. Um, yeah, I have had to have the conversation uh, a couple of times about, you know, more, more training and more racing will not make you stronger. You're actually going to go over this curve and come crashing down. Um, some people think they need to put in more hours, more hours, more hours, do more races. They see their friends all racing, um, but what they don't take into account is some of these people who are racing, the pro and elite athletes, like they are not the common person who has a day job and families and responsibilities and other hobbies. So it's really kind of getting people to see um, how they can maximize their time that they have for their goals. And maybe, you know, it's not smart to race every weekend. Maybe you, or, you know, you, you think about it differently too. You have um, the time you want to peak. So your other races are training. They're, they're B or C events. They're something that you're going to use as part of your training but they're not all of target races because you can't be primed and ready to go for every single race. No, th yeah, I think that's exactly correct. Um, and I, I, I sort of do the same thing with athletes that, uh, that come to me with a, uh, with a jammed pack planned racing schedule is that we start with identifying what are your A races? You know, what, what are the races you want to be? Um, you want to be, uh, uh, you know, in, in peak form for, um, and then based on that, then we, then we, you know, we, we take a look at the, the rest of the events on the schedule and those events that, uh, line up within the, within the training block and support the A race with respect to working toward that goal, mm -hmm. uh, it stays on the schedule. Right. And then, um, you know, and then, and then, and then everything else is, you know, um, is under negotiation, right? Right. Because even if it's a C race, um, uh, and it's just purely done for fun, it potentially takes away a valuable training weekend, right? Um, not that, not that every weekend needs to be, uh, a long, hard effort, but if you've got a long, hard bike race you're training for, you're going to have to put in long, presumably the weekends are the time in which people have uh, open and available to do long, hard efforts. Um, and what I find is that a very busy race schedule, um, while I do think prep races, B races, absolutely can be part of an, of an A race training plan. Uh, I think too many races can detract from preparation uh, for that A race. Because they take they take away valuable um, 
valuable weekend opportunities. Um, Jen, what's your what's your take on strength training? Yes, need to do more strength training. Everybody needs to do strength training. I I think right now, particular I'm particularly tuned into it as I just turned forty. Um, as a woman who just turned forty and is worried about you know losing muscle mass and needing some of that anabolic stimulus like resistance training is something that we definitely need to add into our lives um i know it's it's hard to uh balance that with uh being on the bike and i i think taking a phased approach like throughout the the colder winter months i've been lifting heavy um you know two to three times a week um adding more of that into my life now and really uh personally getting into it and trying to help others get into that um i also think you need to do it safely so having somebody watch your form and and building up weight is really important uh, even for myself like getting back into it. It was something I started doing in, in 2020. And then when the, the gym shut down, all the equipment went into storage, I had nowhere to go, really. So um, even getting back into it, it was something I wanted to do as a, a phased approach and make sure I, I dialed in good form before building the weight. But it is something very cool to be able to do now to to lift heavy and uh, definitely seeing the benefits. Mm. Well, I think I think there are tremendous benefits for for cyclists with respect to uh, power recruitment, with respect to durability. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, you know uh, as as a as a forty year old woman the objective of, of maintaining muscle mass. I would also add that uh, uh, for everyone, but per particularly for perimenopausal women, um, uh, building bone density is important mm. throughout the entire lifespan. And we do know that uh, in addition to impact sports like, uh, like running specifically, but walking to a lesser degree, uh, strength training is also osteogenic. Right? Strength training can be an yeah. excellent way to uh, to build bone mass, uh, uh, specifically about the wrist, uh, and the hip, uh, and the spine too. Although it's, 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 it's difficult and sometimes, uh, not advisable to load with a lot of external weight, uh, about, about the, uh, about the spine. Um, know, but your, your traditional strength training program certainly will help to build bone mass about the wrist and the hip. So um, I'd say that's also probably another, another benefit of, uh, of strength training. Um, let, let me, let me ask one more, let me, let me ask one more technical question. And then I want to, I want to talk about your experience with overcoming adversity. Cause I, I know that you've, uh, you've certainly had your share. Um, it's very common nowadays for athletes to, uh, to collect and submit uh, to their coach, um, either through training peaks or, or, or through some other way, um, sleep data. Uh, mm. I have uh, personally, I've been using a whoop band for the last several years. Um, you know, uh, I noticed that you were wearing a whoop band as well. <laughs> That's why I wanted to ask you about it. Um, mm -hmm. 
uh, as you know, uh, a, a whoop band is uh, sort of a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an every man's uh, accelerometer, um, um, allowing uh, allowing uh, activity data to be collected throughout the day if the band is worn continuously. Um, it also will uh, collect sleep data uh, in the overnight period. I do not use the Whoop band as a daily accelerometer. I don't wear it during the day. I only wear it at night to collect the sleep data. But um, the amount of sleep data, uh, and I, the reason is, um, I was finding I was getting skin irritation, uh, underneath the near infrared sensor area, uh, when I wore it, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, and I, you know, as a, as a multi-sport athlete, um, I collect activity data with a different device. I have a Sunto that collects my activity data. So I don't really need the, the whoop as a daily accelerometer, as a, as a device to collect activity data. Um, but my Sunto, my older uh, Sunto model does not collect sleep data. And it's, you know, these, these earlier generation GPS devices that you wear on your wrist, they're kind of bulky. I wouldn't want to wear it to bed. Um, <laughs> but the Whoop band is very sleek and you don't even know that it's on your wrist. So I love the Whoop band for, for sleep data. Um, Jen, how... How common is it for your athletes to uh, to collect sleep data, and how do you how do you analyze uh, sleep data if it is coming at you as a coach? Yeah, it's uh, another window into the world of people's biometrics, right? I think uh, at least half of the people I'm coaching are wearing them, and and friends. I actually have this this whoop group here. So you can see all your friends data and you can see who's winning with sleep. Um, I actually do wear mine kind of 24 seven. I have a 1318 day data streak, it says since August, 2019. Congratulations. So, and it's not like, um, it's not like I use it to govern my life or make daily decisions. I think like you said, I use other gadgets to track my data for activities. So this is kind of redundant. Um, maybe I'll use it, maybe I'll pull the data off if my watch glitched out during a run or something, but often it's just whatever. Um, but it's really interesting to me more than the day-to-day -to, -day to look at trends. Um, and this is what I tell my athletes too like don't let the whoop tell you how you feel <laughs> they wake up and they see oh it's yellow or oh it's red i should rest and i'm like well how do you how do you feel before you look at that so <laughs> as much as i love data i don't want them to like you know have the thing govern their lives um that being said if i see like multiple days in a row somebody isn't recovering like maybe something's going on um you can see with respiratory right you can see trends before you even uh feel sick if you you caught covid uh, it's one of the reasons why i kept the band throughout the pandemic because it is quite a a pricey monthly payment um, but i was like you know early on i was like hey if i start to get sick maybe i will notice it and i can you know not be around others or test myself um i don't luckily not super worried about that nowadays, but um, I think that's one of the the trends that I 
look at the, the respiratory rate. Um, but as, as far as sleep data, I don't, I don't think I break down people's um, sleep zone so much. I, I'm not into analyzing that as deeply as maybe you are. And I'd love to hear what you do with that data. Um, but I do look at trends and like if people felt like crap on their workouts, well, you know, did you drink the night before and get bad sleep? Like, there's a little journal so you can log things and where it might not be registering to you. If you go back in and you look at your trend, it will show you what comes up as like highly significant, you know, what is statistically significantly impacting your recovery and your sleep so maybe you can make some life changes from there um, if you're a, a data logger yeah i think um for me um i do like to to to, to look a little bit deeper uh into uh, into the sleep uh data specifically with respect to um percentage of time spent in the different sleep cycles uh, one of the interesting and, and informative things for me when I started wearing the Whoop band is before the Whoop band, um, my my impression or my interpretation of what a restful night's sleep was did not include disrupted sleep. Meaning, you know, if I had to get up four or five times a night as a 54-year-old man, I kind of have to get up four or five times a night um, before the Whoop band. I would have assumed the more times I needed to get up, in other words, the more disrupted my night was, the mm -hmm. lower the quality of that night was from a sleep standpoint. That's what I assumed prior to wearing the Whoop Band. When I started wearing the Whoop Band and started collecting sleep data, what I realized was that a disrupted night's sleep did not necessarily equate to a poor performance night's sleep with respect to the two important restorative sleep cycles, slow wave sleep and REM sleep. And that was a, that was a big eye opener, pun intended hmm. for me, uh, was that disrupted sleep did not equate to poor sleep from a restorative sleep standpoint. Um, because I, I, like you, I, I probably have 50% of my athletes collect sleep data and the other, the other half do not, but it, but it's actually a, it's actually a sleep performance or sleep quality is a metric I have them self-assess every Friday. You know, you know, as, as a coach mm. at Training Peaks, you can um, you can have your athletes uh, self-assess any metric or any metric uh, from a list of you know a couple dozen different metrics. Well, one of the metrics I ask athletes to self-assess each week is sleep quality, uh, subjective sleep quality. And for those that don't have, uh, that don't collect sleep data, they have to rely on how they feel relative to, to, to whether or not they're getting restful sleep. I know though, as a, as a whoop user that, that, that generally speaking as humans, we're somewhat unreliable with respect to determining whether or not we got restful sleep, the, the devil's in the details, right? Um, for my athletes that do collect sleep data, each week when they are self-assessing sleep quality, what I ask them to do is reflect back upon the previous seven days of sleep data. And if they are noticing that they are getting at least 40% of their total sleep time cumulatively in those two restorative sleep cycles, then that generally equates to a, a quality night's sleep from a restorative standpoint. Now, of course, 
You know, there's the law of individuality. Everyone's just a little bit different. Some athletes do a little bit better. Some athletes do perfectly fine with less than 40% restorative sleep. Other athletes need, you know, 50% plus. But but the point is, you, what I have my athletes do is to look at that data and begin to establish some trends so that, you know, Jen, from reviewing your data, that generally your average is, you know, 40%, 40% of your, of your, of your night sleep is spent in those two restorative sleep cycles. That's your average. So, you know, if, if in the previous week, more often than not, you've been below average, well, from a sleep performance standpoint, from a quality standpoint, your quality is a little bit less that week. So, um, so I, I, I'm, I'm very much a proponent. I, I mean, I, I really appreciate when athletes collect and report sleep data, I know how valuable it's been to me. Now, to your point, though, I don't make daily decisions about my activity pattern based on how restful my sleep was last night. Right. Right. That said, uh, and I don't and, and, and I don't do that with my athletes either. That said, if we notice that there we if we notice that there are are trends toward the negative mm -hmm. athletes are not getting restorative sleep consistently, then we got to need we need to start asking some questions about sleep hygiene. You know? Right. Because um, there are there are ways that you can affect uh, the the your restorative sleep. I mean, there are I mean, there are things that you can do uh, negatively, uh, like things you want to avoid. Um, but there are also there are also you know good sleep habits that you can begin to develop either way. I think I think um, I think the ability uh, to analyze sleep data, I, I think, is a really important metric for us as professional endurance coaches. Uh, I mean, it's obviously it, it's one set of data for sure, but I think it's a really important set of data, really, really important. And it's data that, you know, a decade ago, Jen, it wasn't available to us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I do. I, you know, I've listened to podcasts and I've been looking into the sufficiency, efficiency, consistency, specifically for me, my consistency and sufficiency, maybe I should dig deeper into the efficiency, but it's really the, you know, the time, the bed and wake times. And I definitely see the impact if I get a week of bad consistency, like it will, it will call me out. And I'm like, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm feeling this. So you can look back, you can see those patterns and it's not by chance what we're doing, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Right. Cause, cause, cause restorative sleep is not something you can fake. You know, you can't, no. <laughs> it, I wish. It, yeah, it, it, it is a matter of the things that you are doing or that you're not doing. Mm -hmm. um, well, as, as professional endurance coaches, a common subject we discuss with our athletes is adversity. Uh, you certainly have seen your share, right? Um, in 2021, for instance, your cyclocross race season ended with a crash at uh, Orchard Cross, the beloved <sighs> Orchard Cross. Uh, Jen, what happened uh, at Orchard Cross 2021? Oh, boy. I know. I was having a, a great race season, feeling pretty strong. And uh, I think that was the first race that we actually got our salty women off-road bicycle team kits in so you know i finally had team kit on looking good um i think it was the second or maybe the third lap around the apple orchard i was feeling very confident had my line styled it was very muddy and hard course 
but I was going down the backside of a muddy hill and I must have taken a, a slightly different line because somebody else was on the course where I wanted to go and my front wheel just went into a hole that was under the mud that was completely invisible. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have seen it was there. I rode into it and went full on endo into the mud. And uh, one of the photographers on course captured this brilliant series of photos that at first I thought were really cool. And I went through a time where I thought it was like pretty traumatic. Then I showed all my doctors. <laughs> But yeah, spectacular mud endo. Um, I didn't actually hit my head on the ground, but um, as, as a lot of folks know, and, and some might not, you don't actually need to hit your head on something to get a concussion. It's all about, you know, your brain is still moving forward and it can hit the inside of your head. And that's that's all it took, my thumping the ground on my arms and, and my side and my hip. Um, you know, I got up and I finished that race. I remember being a bit dazed, but I, I got up and I kind of did a, a little self-check, like, are there any major injuries, any blood, any bones sticking out? Nope, I seem to be okay. And I looked around and none of the spectators or photographers seemed to look at me with any concern, like I shouldn't get back on my bike and keep racing. So I did, because um, I think you know, once the bike throws you like that, you, it's great to get back on and then you get it out of your head immediately that you can crash and you can get back on the bike and be fine. Um, so I finished out a couple of laps all covered with mud. And I remember feeling a bit dazed and a little like drunk without drinking at the end. And it was one of my teammates who, who got in my face and was like, you need to get checked out. I think you're concussed. You know, she said it a couple of times and, um, and I knew she was right. And it was, uh, it was really a couple of days later that I got up from my chair at work and like hobbled out the door. Like all of a sudden I could almost not walk. And, uh, I was like, okay, I need to get checked out. So, yeah, it turned out um, I had a concussion, whiplash, and a stuck hip. So that turned into two and a half months of PT and OT. Um, yeah, it uh, it was a, a crazy end to my season, but I knew it was over um, at that point. You know, you got to give yourself time to recover and racing when you're not fully recovered from a concussion is a terrible idea they can mm. compound and you know that was the second one i had and um so at least i knew what i needed for myself so i went to my doctor and said i need you to refer me to this doctor that's all i am here for because <laughs> they just tell you to go home and sleep so yeah thankfully i i had some good friends and teammates and um I knew what I needed to do to, to get back on track, but it was a, a harsh end to my 2021 season. Um, well, the, the adversity wouldn't, wouldn't stop there. Of course. Um, <laughs> you, you turned 40 in, was it March of 2022? Uh, February, February, 2022. I right. turned you, 40. Yeah. You turned 40 in February of 2022. Um, 
and a, a, just as a sort of a as a routine thing uh, for 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 women uh, once they turn forty, uh, your doctor advised that you that you go and get a mammogram. Um, ends up that ends up that was a good choice and good advice by your doctor. What? How did that How did that decision to get a mammogram change your life? Yeah, I mean, 2022 was a, a complete whirlwind. I was trying not to make a big deal around turning 40. Like I, I was getting over my cross season injuries and I was ready to get back into it and starting to, you know, build up uh, some fitness again. But yeah, I, I turned 40. I went to routine well woman physical. My doctor says, go get a mammogram. And I'm like, well, how? And she was like, oh, your insurance covers it. You can pick a place or I can refer you. So, you know, I went home and I Googled like the best place because I'm a scientist and what, who has the best imaging. And, you know, I went and I was like, okay, this is going to be like a little weird, but whatever. It's 10 minutes of my life. And um, yeah, I had no signs or symptoms, no family history, clear genetics and you know, that spiraled into you have breast cancer. And I was kind of incredulous. And uh, once that train starts, it does not stop. So it was, uh, it was something <laughs> I didn't have time to brace for impact here before I was caught up into it. And it, um, it completely, you know, ruled my life last year. Um, I, I was very, very lucky that it was caught early it was stage one it was not in my lymph nodes i think you know all the the testing and appointments and biopsies and all, all of the scary stuff i had to go through was a bit traumatizing but it i would happily do it all over again to catch this early and to be fit and healthy going into 2023 um you know it's something i've told my friends and family and anyone who listen and and they're like oh wow if this could happen to you then i should really get checked out like i this uh you're you're super fit and healthy and i i would never guessed this would happen to you and i, I wouldn't have guessed it would happen to myself either um so you know we have insurance covered testing and just go and do it and you know put your mind at ease that's that's what i would ask all of my friends and anyone who maybe put it off during the pandemic um i know people were putting off doctor's appointments and they heard my story and, and they went to get checked out and it makes me happy that i can make that difference at least by by telling my story um but yeah i had 87 doctor's appointments, surgeries, and procedures last year. So it was just a, a complete marathon event of, you know, this thing is in your face 24-7, and it is it is super stressful. So I think if you're, you're an athlete and you've been training, um, it sets you up very well to handle something like this. It's not something that you think about, but, you know, if you've got to beat yourself up, on purpose um it helps to start from a good uh place of fitness <laughs> with your your recovery and and how you handle treatments and um 
and even staying active through the healing processes. Uh, I was a complete pain to my surgeon and my doctors with uh, negotiating what I was allowed to do and having them understand what my baseline was <laughs> versus um, a typical sedentary office worker. So I am lucky. I, I had a, a really great team. They worked with me. It was a lot to get through. I mean, it took me from March of 2020 through um, October of 2022, uh, 2022, not 2020, um, to get through the end of my radiation treatment. It was in the middle there. I took a trip to France. Um, but yeah, it's it's a marathon. I think uh, mentally it's, it's wearing. So it helps to have a, a good physical start. Well, you mentioned, um, well, first of all, as we, as we both know, um, cancer does not discriminate. Um, and, um, I mean, uh, unlike, unlike metabolic diseases, like, like heart disease or diabetes, in which generally speaking, uh, you know, the, the fitter and, and more, and more active you are, the lower your incidence of metabolic diseases, cancer is not that way. There is not really necessarily a, a relationship or a, or a strong relationship, particularly with some cancers, um, uh, with respect to, you know, to the, the, the fittest among us uh, being less susceptible to them. Um, I do th think, though, that, 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 that it's interesting um, that um, as an endurance athlete, you know, you, you actually did have a unique skill set uh, in order to, uh, to work through this adversity. I mean, I think, you know, as again, as I, as I mentioned, it's to set this up as professional endurance coaches, we're, we're, we're talking with our athletes all the time about adversity. We're not talking about cancer, though. That's not the type of adversity we're talking about with our right. athletes. We're, 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 <laughs> we're talking about challenging weather conditions that we need to go out and run a ride in. Or we're talking about, uh, you know, having a, a relatively minor injury or sometimes even a major injury that we have to work through. That's the mm. type of adversity that that as endurance athletes we tend to deal with and, and coaches that we tend to deal with quite frequently. Um, and I, and, but I do think that, um, that as, that as athletes, uh, our, our experience in routinely working through adversity, I think puts us in a little bit different posture when we're faced with significant adversity. You know, um, I believe that it's through adversity that, that we're able to develop the self-awareness patience, the resilience, the knowledge, and the strong relationships that, 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 that uh, help us to, to, to more successfully navigate this, this thing that we call life and, and sometimes help us to navigate these, these, these really uh, sort of rough seas, you know, that, that, that something like, something like, like cancer. Um, I, it, it's a, it's a crazy question to ask to ask and, 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 and maybe you'd say nothing, but I'm curious, how did 2022 improve your life? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think uh, I'm very much still working through 
what just happened to me and you know it was a breath of fresh air when I, I got my independence and my, my life back from these doctors. It's still a bit traumatizing every time I have to go check in with them. But uh, for most of the time on the day to day, like I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to, to live my life and healthy. And um, I would say 2022 really improved my life by strengthening my friends and family network, I think. The friends and the people who reached out to me, there were more people who cared about me like than I could have imagined. Um, I started a, a blog post, uh, a blog, cancer blog, just to um, honestly, it was honest and raw to get it out there on the day to day what I was going through. And it, it really helped me that people just read it i could see if they logged in and read it they didn't have to say anything but it's a really hard thing to understand when somebody's going through something like this so just you know to know that people cared enough to want to understand what i was going through there's not much you can do to to help somebody but um but understand and, and be there and hang out and, and care about what's going on um so i had this huge safety net um it really strengthened my relationships with my my friend my close friends and I, I really understood who was on my team um and i would i would help them with anything in an instant you know it was uh that was really special and uh and maybe putting everything into perspective of this very deep perspective now um you know what what matters and what does not and uh you know some things were that i might have cared about before seem a bit more trivial nowadays uh when you put anything everything into perspective um so yeah i think i think those are my huge takeaways from this and and just to know like what you're capable of um dealing with physically and mentally and, and mostly emotionally and things I had never put myself through and, you know, for a long time, but the physical stuff is easy to recover from. I think that was easy for an athlete, but like the mental beatings were, were really tough. So just knowing like I have the resilience to get through that it's tried and tested now. So can I put it into, into practice and in race season and uh, have a little different perspective? Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh great segue into uh into your plans for 2023 what's uh what's on tap for you this year jen from from a racing standpoint yeah i think it's been like a a gentle return into seeing where my motivation stands and uh but i'm feeling pretty motivated after my little cycling trip to spain to to get going on some gravel events um I'm signed up for the, the Muddy Onion next month in Vermont, up in April. And then uh, a time trial, Crank the Kink. I'll dabble in a little maybe 5K road race here or there because I am secretly like running, but I can't say that anymore because I like running. Uh, Raid Rockingham. I've got the Ranger, the Vermont Gravel Enduro race uh, that I'm really looking forward to. I haven't done that one before. And uh, the Guilford Gravel Grinder, which is 
I think like New England championships or New Hampshire gravel championships. Right. Um, the Kearsarge Classic in August, I'm leading a no drop co-ed ride. And then uh, maybe something else in August, TBD, maybe a little fun and then segueing into cross season. And I'm, I'm really excited this September through December to see where my motivation is and kind of just use the year to prime myself up and get confident with uh, the bike again that has tossed me a bit. Um, I've got some skills work to get um, get through and some mental things to get out of my head. And uh, I'm really excited to, to hit cross season and uh, go at it in the rain and mud, you know, and, and be back in that community because I really, you know, you, you can race, but that community is special. And uh, especially my, my team, Salty Women, and having this bigger supportive network now, um, teaching skills clinics at the races and being more involved as leaders. Um, that's something really rewarding that I want back in my life. So looking forward to the fall, but uh, not rushing it either. <laughs> you, you, you've got a lot of things in the interim before we, before we get to the fall for sure. <laughs> got a um, couple of things. <laughs> um, Last follow-up question uh, related to, uh, to to Salty Women. Um, how do people find out more information about that? Yeah, team? we actually we have an Instagram uh, account, Salty Women Race Bikes. And we also have a website, which is saltywomenoffroadbicycleteam.com. It's a bit of a mouthful, but um, that's where you can find out uh, a little bit about us and our mission to uh, support competitive women who love to race and foster community and um, being inclusive and welcoming to new riders and, and existing riders who are looking for that support structure. Um, we have our, our team roster, little profiles up there, um, sponsors and some upcoming clinics and the races that will be at posted. So cool check it out cool and um how do people find out more about your coaching yeah um you can check out rofaendurance.com which is r-o-f-a endurance.com um, i have a little profile right up maybe i need to uh revamp up there um, i'm also very active on instagram at jen x murphy that's j-e-n letter x murphy um yeah i post pictures of food and bikes and dinosaurs and puppies and <laughs> all of the adventures that i go on a lot of spain pictures up there right now cool um thank you uh, and i'll i'll make sure to uh to post those um the the those uh contact points uh in the show notes as well uh jen let's finish with this it's a segment of the show I like to call three random questions. Ooh. Okay. Um, now, first thing I need you to do is to uh, is to verify for the listener that you have not received these three questions in advance. Can you verify that? I can verify that I have no idea what you're going to ask me. <laughs> I'm a little worried. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, the funny behind the scenes is that uh, I I did send Jen a, a show outline that had some of the questions, many of the questions that I was planning to ask her. And I I sent it as a PDF document and I said to her, look, if you're if you're the kind of person that you just like to be spontaneous, then don't open the PDF document because it'll ruin it for you. But if you <laughs> if, if you want to see what the show outline looks like, including some of the questions I might ask. Uh, go ahead and open the document. You got back to me right away and said something like, "You are, uh, got it. yeah, you're a planner." So you, uh, <laughs> you, you, you did, you did, you did look to see. But I did not send you these three random questions. So this is going to be fun to see you think on your feet. Ready? All right. Okay. All right. Random question number one for uh, for Jen Murphy. Jen, I have a time machine in my garage, and I'd like to offer you uh, a ride for free. Now you can spend three seconds in the future. Or you can spend three hours in the past. Where are you going and why? Hmm. I feel like it's a bad idea to get in your time machine because I'm going to interrupt the space-time continuum and history as we know it. Let's let's assume. Thank you, as a scientist. Let's assume <laughs> that that wherever you go, uh, you are there simply as an observer and not to impact either the past uh, or uh, have any impact on the future? Oof. Well, if I could go back far into the past as a as, scientist as and far a back as you lover, I think I, I need to go back into the Jurassic or something. And if you're telling me I'm not going to actually get eaten by dinosaurs, like I need to, I need to see this in person. <laughs> I, so the Jurassic period. Yeah, I, okay. I would say. I, okay. I want to see. You know, are we are we right with our depiction of dinosaurs and toys? I don't think so. Okay. What do the well, feathers actually look like? What What does this look like that has not been preserved in fossilized evidence? Uh, well, color, as as you know, is is color. obviously a, color is a difficult thing to uh, to interpret just from the fossil record. So uh, yes, that would be that would be fascinating. Um, well, I don't know how you did it, but great segue into my second random question. Second random question for Jen Murphy. Jen, as a serious dino lover, which now we know that you are, wh what you got, Godzilla or Jurassic Park? And I'm talking the film. Uh, the, 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 um, the, the film series, the film franchises. That's what I'm trying to say. Godzilla or Jurassic Park. I've got to go like the original Jurassic Park, maybe not like the third one or whatever, but like the original, like that was growing up. That was my childhood. That was, uh, those were dinosaurs to me. The velociraptors hunting in packs of threes, like absolutely all the way. The mosquitoes preserved in amber, extracting the DNA. Yep. It hits all the high points. By the way, did you have you have you seen have you seen that thing where the at what people are people are ingenious. Have you seen the have you seen the thing on social media where this some guy has has edited out? You remember the remember the T Rex scene where they're I think this is in the original Jurassic Park where they're where they're in the vehicles 
and the T-Rex is the T-Rex is they're having an encounter with the T-Rex in the vehicles. They're like stuck oh, yeah. somewhere and the right and the and the T-Rex like looks in the in the window and oh, yeah. kids are screaming. Well, some guy has edited out the T-Rex and is and has put has put in the T-Rex's place his black cat. <laughs> and it, it and it is i i happen to i happen to come across today it is absolutely the most hilarious thing i you have you have ever seen it's the jurassic park it's 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 that scene but instead of the t-rex it's it's the guy's cat, cat. it's it is hilarious i um, have to mention my lab team actually um recreated jurassic park like uh the jurassic park trailer and I can send you a link to that. It's incredible. But we actually reenacted that scene where the dinosaur is looking in the window and I'm looking like, you know, wide eyed. Um, it's brilliant. I'll, I'll send it to you. Please do. Um, okay. Last, last random question. Jen, you're hosting a group ride and you can invite three VIPs. Now assume all VIPs are cyclists, whether you know them to be cyclists or not. Now, these VIPs can be people you know or have never met. They can be from the future, the present, or the past. They can be real or fictional, including cartoon, movie, or book characters. They can even be you from the past or from the future. Jen, who are your three VIPs and why? Oh no, this is such a loaded question. It could be anybody in there a cyclist. Ah, oh, do I want to know what I'm like in the future? Hmm. <laughs> I kind of wonder what it would be like to ride with like multiple clones of myself from different points in time. Now you've got me thinking about that just just to do the experiment. Oof. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. It's it's. This is something like you're you're putting a scientist on the spot. Like I would have to go and analyze all of my options and pick the best thing. <laughs> well, for for a moment, think more. Think more artistically. Uh, think more left brain. Isn't the le Isn't left? Isn't left brain? Isn't it the art artistic side of the brain? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Hmm. I would have to go with. <sighs> You're completely destroying my brain right now. I, I'll let, I'll get back to you like a week later, but I'm going to go with different iterations of myself from past, present, future. <laughs> that, that <laughs> is what a, would happen. That, that's a, that's a fair answer for a scientist put on the spot uh, about a question that certainly would be much more interesting. The answer would be much more interesting. <clears throat> could I ride with like my dogs only they could talk? <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe that like a, <laughs> a dinosaur that could talk, my dog, my past dogs. I just want to know what's in their brains because they're always so happy. You know, they always want to chase me on my bike. I think that would be a good choice. It's probably not the best answer, but like I would be, I would have a really happy ride. <laughs> 
Um, any ride, any ride spent with dogs most certainly would be a happy ride. Jen, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Jen makes an excellent point about the impact of the pandemic on preventative medicine. In fact, a study published by the Journal of the American Medical Association found that mammograms declined by 67% in women 46 to 64 years old in 2020. If you missed important routine diagnostic screenings because of the pandemic, go ahead and get those rescheduled as soon as possible. Jen's story is an excellent example of the importance of that. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.